You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, and um, I just what I was saying to Mark earlier. For some reason or other, I haven't been around on the evenings of Beyond the Book of Kells lecture series, and I'm so sad about this because they've been so hugely successful. And I would have liked to have had this opportunity to welcome everybody long before now. Uh, however, it's never too late, um, and I really am delighted that the series has gone so well. I want to congratulate Mark, but also the members of the uh, Manuscript and uh, Print Culture theme, which is one of five university research themes that we support, for just taking the initiative and just making this such a successful <coughs> series, so successful, in fact, that we're hoping to continue it um, and uh, making it just one of the flagship series in the Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, for those of you who don't know what we do in here, it's really very simple and it's only three things. The first is just simply to celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity. The second thing we want to do is to promote multi and interdisciplinarity across the arts and humanities. Something like 20 disciplines are represented by colleagues uh, uh, who are active members of the Trinity Long Room Hub. But then from the arts and humanities across the natural sciences, the uh, environmental sciences, uh, uh, medical, uh, neuro, uh, uh, computer uh, sciences, and so on. So we really uh, uh, welcome, it's even seeing Cece Bialetti at the back, bringing science uh, uh, to, to, to uh, the work here in medieval manuscripts. Uh, the final thing we do is public humanities and take the learning of uh, the arts and humanities to wider audiences and actually it's this sort of seminar that we put huge value on uh, that public outreach. And we were just talking about a little video that Mark made um, before Christmas. Something like 40,000 people, Francesca will correct me how many it is now, but it's a, a, a serious numbers of people have viewed that online and no better way uh, to communicate. And obviously we podcast everything we do on he in here, including this lecture series. So you can send it on to friends, colleagues, listen to it again. So again, terribly important part of what we do. So that's all I wanted to say. It's great, just so many are here. Hopefully you'll continue to come. Um, I was going to say me speaking this evening, but there's still three or four before the end of the series. And um, I'll hand over to, to Mark now. Uh, but again, well done, Mark, for taking the initiative. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Neve Patwell, who's made the long journey from Belfield to us. Uh, she's a graduate of UCC and indeed of Trinity, where she was supervised by our very own John Scattergood for her PhD. She is an editor of Middle English Texts. She has also uh, recently edited a special section in the Irish University Review on medieval literature and contemporary Irish writing. And with John, she is currently editing the hand list of Middle English prose volume for Dublin. Tonight, though, she is talking about Trinity Manuscript 70, a Wickliffite Psalter. And before we begin this evening, some of you in the room would be aware that we've lost one of our uh, senior paleographers um, in Durham in the last uh, 24-48 hours, Ian Doyle. I don't know if some of you would have known him or, or met him, um, but there's many of us in this room, or many of us who work in this area, even 
Sparrow is Dublin uh, couldn't have done some of the work that we have done without the help um, uh, of, the, of Ian over the years. So I just feel the need to, to mention him and to wish him well on his journey. Okay, so this evening I'm talking to you about Trinity College Dublin Manuscript 70. It's one of the many Wycliffe-like manuscripts um, that we have in Trinity College Dublin. Um, we have in Trinity College Dublin. So to help situate that, I'm going to talk a little bit about Wycliffism um, at the beginning of the lecture, before I kind of bring you in to look at some of the closer details of the manuscript itself. In England, in the late Middle Ages, there arose an heretical movement known as Wycliffism, sometimes known as Lollardy. Now, the Lollardy is often considered to be the more popular term, or populist term, but there's a little bit of dispute about that. I'll probably end up using them interchangeably this evening. It's so-called after the Oxford theologian John Wycliffe, who was declared a heretic at the end of the 14th century. And to put it fairly simply and quickly, Wycliffeites were believed or were accused of believing, among other things, that everyone and anyone could preach, that the laity should have access to the scriptures in English, that the Eucharist is an act of commemoration, not a creation of the real presence, and that the church should be disendowed. And I've really only selected just some of the sort of uh, key uh, principles that are, are key ideas that are associated with Wycliffism. On the other side of the debate during the Middle Ages, you have the traditional hierarchy declaring resistance to access to the scriptures by the laity, demanding faith in the Eucharist and subscription to oral confession, reasserting the authority of the clergy through retention of theological and scriptural discourse in Latin. And of course, it was a time of trials, persecutions, and burnings throughout the late Middle Ages for those who did not abjure from any of the beliefs declared above. It is becoming clear, however, through studies of religious and devotional practice, including the manuscripts of the period, that there were many nodes of overlap between the so-called Wycliffism and Orthodoxy. Wycliffists venerated the name of Jesus. Wycliffite Bibles were owned by nuns and priests. Wycliffite sermons were adapted to remove more obvious heretical statements on the Eucharist, but retained criticism of the clergy. Literature on oral confession was even valued among some so-called Wycliffites, though the emphasis might change a little bit to remove maybe the necessity of confessing to a priest. Orthodox writers produced catechetical writings in the vernacular in huge volumes, despite the so-called ban on this. Readers often removed some elements of text that would have been considered objectionable, and yet left other equally objection objectionable elements. So it might be helpful then to turn to the language of hard borders and soft borders, which dominate our political discourse at the present time and to apply that language to the world of popular devotion in the Middle Ages, seeing it as a world of soft borders in which the usual binaries of lay religious, men, women, heterodox, orthodox, Latin and vernacular are more porous and less resistant than we are often led to believe. And I am not alone in such musings. For example, 
writing about six catechetical compilation manuscripts of the late Middle Ages, Margaret Connolly talks about the crossover of such reading material between lay and religious in the 15th century. Kathleen Kennedy, citing Mary Rashko, describes the border between a heretic and an orthodox believer as permeable and situational, in part because Lollards and more mainstream Christians shared devotional interests. This is not to say, of course, that there were not points of contention or those who argued for the retention of hard borders. In 1409, and again in 1414, Archbishop Arundel issued church laws insisting that the laity were not to discuss theological matters, that instruction was to be kept at the bare minimum, and, citing, that no man hereafter by his own authority translate any text of the scripture into English. Yet, it seems that despite these restrictions, ideas, practices and texts crossed the divide, whether knowingly or unknowingly is actually quite difficult to discern, between orthodox and heterodox. In this vein, some scholars talk of the failure of Arundel's restrictions, whereas others comment on the success of the Wicked <coughs> Bible and its appropriation to mainstream religion. However you look at it, the reality is this. Vernacular religious writings continue to be produced, albeit perhaps in more conformist, less expansive way than in the previous <coughs> century. Many of those reflect an a la carte approach to devotional practices. Yes, even in the Middle Ages. Projects such as the Index of Middle English Prose, to which I come to these manuscripts, or the Oxford Wycliffe Bible Project, or the detailed studies of local communities done by Rob Lutton on Kent, or uh, Patrick Hornbeck on Winchester. Even the historiography of orthodoxy and heterodoxy challenge our understanding of the simple binaries, lay cleric, literate illiterate, orthodox, heterodox. This evening, based on the discovery of some interesting connections with other manuscripts, I want to consider another manuscript that seems to situate itself within these binaries along the spectrum or continuum. My aim is to contribute to that which Kelly and Perry have called a chronicle of the messy tissue, I love that phrase, the messy tissue of texts that fill devotional manuals produced in 15th century England, in the hope that we can provide more nuanced reflections upon both textual and cultural and religious practice. So, my main focus this evening is manuscript number 70. It's a small handheld manuscript, about the size of a thick, small novel, uh, translated from the Wycliffe, it contains the Book of Psalms, translated from the Wycliffe Psalter and a catechism. The Wycliffe Psalter, just so that we're all clear, was a large-scale project in which a group of scholars, probably not including Wycliffe himself, or possibly his friends, got together to translate the whole of the Bible into Middle English. So it's a deliberate project. It's not the kind of random um, or occasional translations that we find into, into the vernacular before this time. It's a very deliberate project. We're going to translate this into the vernacular. <coughs> there are over 250 manuscripts of the vernacular Bible still in existence. Trinity College Dublin is one of them. It was produced in the first quarter of the 15th century, and just to describe it very quickly, 
It's written on a thin matte membrane of professional quality. It measures 148 by 95 millimeters, or an old money six by four inches. There are about 21 <coughs> lines to a page. This manuscript was definitely conceived as a single unit to live its life as one book. In other words, it's not one of these manuscripts where somebody came across um, a, a booklet about this and a booklet about that and combined them to eventually form a single manuscript. It started its life as a single manuscript and with the intention of being a single manuscript. And we know this for a number of reasons. There are 197 folios with two flyleaves in 25 choirs, now choirs being the booklets, if you're experts in this at this stage, I'm sure, booklets of folded parchment, and they're all eight folios. The, the last one I'll write is four folios, but all the rest are eight folios. Now, that said, some of the choirs are missing folios, but I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. The fact that there's such an evenness in the number of folios or pages per choir gives us one clue that there is design and effort gone into the production of this manuscript. <laughs> the second clue rests in its script. It's one, it's, it's one of these beautiful book hands, um, a kind of a, a textura, Anglicana textura, um, of the beginning of the 15th century. The scribe has been located to Huntington, but may have worked in London. In fact, most likely he was probably part of this um, burgeoning group of uh, scribes and, and book producers uh, working to kind of in a circle or working in a, in a, in a group um, in London in the 15th century. He has been linked with other Wycliffe manuscripts and has also been linked with other manuscripts that are technically not Wycliffe. Though I found myself thinking about it over the last few days, and they too tend to straddle that soft border. Um, between. So mm, that's something that requires further thinking, I think, on my part. At a first glance, it looks like a plain, inexpensive volume. Apart from one remaining decorated initial at folio 37, the manuscript is written in black ink with capital letters at the beginning of psalm verses. You can see, I'll go back actually to show you that kind of more truly, this kind of thing, okay? In red and blue. They're about two, two lines deep. The opening words of the Psalms are provided in Latin. And I'll talk to you a little bit about those again in a minute. And they're always written in red. There are catchwords, you know, the little words that indicate how choirs are supposed to be tied together. Again, a sign of design and effort, folio sing signatures. And then we have the usual thing. You can see down and up beside there some little dots, that little tricking, showing how they ruled out the manuscript before, and you can actually still see the ruling on some of the pages. So in TCD 70, which is how I refer to it from here on in, we have a plain manuscript, modest and practical. But don't be fooled, it is still a careful, professional and probably expensive production. It has been mentioned in general studies of Wycliffe Bibles and Psalters, but apart from one short article where it is linked to another Wycliffe Psalter written by Michael Kaczynski, Count of the short glosses that occur in its margins, these things here. Okay, this is extraneous material to the main body of Psalms that Michael has written about. It has not been the subject of a major study. Now, Nicholas Orr, Paul Aker, Vincent Gillespie have all written to a varying extent 
on the existence of Middle English primers. None of them seems to have recognised that TCD 70 should also be considered as one of the six Middle English primers of the late Middle Ages. The word primer comes from the Latin meaning first and relates, of course, to the idea of first book. Um, John was telling me that he had a primer of Anglo-Saxon. Was it Sweets? Is my right? Sweets uh, primer of Anglo-Saxon. Okay, so we would still use the word today. I think for many of us, it's hard also not to think of the first layer of paint that goes on the wall prior to, prior to, 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 to the, the loss or whatever goes over. So it's the first step, it's the first part of something, okay, the base. In the strict sense of that word, and I'm afraid there are further sliding boundaries around it because sometimes it's referred to, it used to describe a book of hours, but in the strictest sense, a primer is understood as a tool for learning. <coughs> To read, to, of learning to read. The earliest example of which I'm told survives in a 9th or 10th century copy of the letters of Alcuin, into which someone has added the alphabet, alphabet and the Paternoster, or the Latin version of the Our Father, into the margins of two folios. Most of the primers of England are in Latin, uh, of the Middle Ages. Nicholas Orme, a specialist in children of the Middle Ages, writes, primer was first mentioned as a lay prayer book at the end of the 13th century. They contained the basic prayers and other short religious pieces, usually in Latin, but sometimes start with an alphabet, suggesting that the primer was a book for parents or, or teachers to use with children. As I've said already, there are six of them, and TCD 70 is one of that six. They're readily identifiable by the alphabet that opens the catechetical section of the manuscripts. And here's an example from a Glasgow manuscript. The alphabet is sometimes known as a cross row, okay, an account of this um, sign of the cross that starts at the beginning of the um, alphabet. Some people call it a kiss cross. Okay, I only came across that recently. And I think it has something to do with the idea of uh, those little crosses in books to, to indicate where the priest should kiss the book some stage, okay, so it's kind of part of that tradition of kissing crosses. You'll notice that it has some strange uh, symbols here towards the end. These are, um, these are uh, leftovers from the Latin alphabet, this one I think uh, to refer to est, which interestingly enough at this stage has been included itself, okay. You have the short form of et, and I noticed that this manuscript has removed some of the others. You'd often come across ones with the, sh the abbreviation. You know, I talk with Mark for con, for example. You know, the little, yeah, the little C or the little nine. Okay. Um, so this would have been very useful for anyone learning to read Latin, as these were common abbreviations. You'll also notice that it has two A's. Okay. Now you could argue, and it looks a bit like it here, that this is for majuscule and minuscule. But in fact, it's more likely to reflect that at this period of writing, you end up with two A's very often. You get the form and you get the secretary one as well. So the scribe who's putting together this alphabet is very conscious of, it's a real practical too, they're very conscious of what their reader is going to find. In most manuscripts then, it is followed by the Paternoster. You can see that there in the previous slide. And of course that makes sense because a beginner reader would already know the Paternoster by rote, and would it, and that would enable the student then to connect up the letters. So it's it's good pedagogy, working together the known and the unknown. 
The presence of the cross at the beginning of the alphabet identifies the cross row as part of a devotional culture based on the book, and therefore the alphabet was to be treated as a prayer. Primers were also available in Europe, and Kate Rudy has written about a Flemish primer observing that the alphabet is inherited from the early Middle Ages for learning Latin. And this is also true of the alphabet that we find in the Hunter manuscript and in the Klimter manuscript, as far as I know, in one of the other ones that I've mentioned in the Rawlinson C209. It's, it's a particularly Latin alphabet. But I want you to take a closer look at this very blurry, I'm sorry about that, this very blurry um, uh, one. And you can see an extra letter in here, the letter W. Orm refers to it as an exceptional use of this W in his study of primers. But here we go. Let's look at Trinity College Dublin 70. It also has the W. This raises some coincidences. Was this just a coincidence? Is it indicative of the trend of the later Middle Ages? As the use of the vernacular alphabet in devotional manuscripts increased, did scribes grow wise and adapt the Latin alphabet to include the, the more anglicised letter form W? You wouldn't find a W in the Latin alphabet. And I've come across an example of this in a German manuscript, for example. Or is this, can we say that this is evidence of a particular relationship between the Winchester anthology and our manuscript in TCD? And as I'm sure you're guessing by now, I think that this later position is probably the case. First of all, as far as I'm aware, of the six English primers, only two carry this newly anglicised alphabet, though it's still now, to be fair, retaining some of the Latin forms. Secondly, this identical alphabet is not the only point of commonality between TCD 70 and that other manuscript, British Library Edition 60577, which I will now refer to from here on in as the Winchester Anthology, because it was found, it, it, it worked, it did its work as part of Winchester. Okay, So they're the two main manuscripts I'm talking about from now on, Trinity 70 and the Winchester Anthology. These two have other points of commonality. As I've said already, learning to read was very much associated with the Christian project. Most of the alphabets in these manuscripts were followed by copies of the Paternoster and Ave Maria in Latin. It's all part of the programme of reform that began with the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. These six vernacular primer manuscripts also include basic Christian instruction in the rudimentary aspects of the faith. The Ten Commandments, Seven Books of Mercy, Seven Deadly Sins, Seven Gifts of the Holy Spirit, and so, and so on. Sometimes these simple instructions of the principles of the faith were integrated into larger, more sophisticated texts, but more often than not, they consisted of little more than enumerated lists. By the 15th century, however, the time in which TCD 70 and the Winchester Anthology were produced, you have a vast number of basic catechetical necessities reduced in response to both ecclesiastical directive and the growing desire for self-education among the literate classes. These catechetical miscellanies were produced from short tracts and combined in various ways to provide coverage of the full catechism. So the shortness of the tracts then lent themselves to a kind of a pick-and-mix situation where somebody is actually handwriting out the texts. So you end up with 
the Paternoster from manuscript A, combined with the Ten Commandments from manuscript C, or B, and maybe the Seven Works of Mercy from manuscript C, all combined together into manuscript D. So you get this strange mixing and matching going on. And, you know, sometimes you're lucky enough to find patterns between these, and that gives us some indicator of <coughs> patterns of distribution and dissemination um, in the Middle Ages. It's very curious then, okay, this is an example of the kind of, of what the full page looks like. It's curious then that the Winchester Anthology and the TCD7 man, uh, TCD 70 share not only an English alphabet, but also share a catechetical miscellany or compilation that is not reflected in the other six primary manuscripts, or anywhere else in fact. The two manuscripts, with the exception of some vocabulary changes, are identical catechisms. And in fact, they are a translation of chapters 8 to 17 of a work produced by Edmund of Abingdon in the 13th century, known in Latin as the Speculum Ecclesi, but translated into Anglo Norman at the beginning of the 14th century under the title Mirror de l'Eglise, and into English as the Mirror of Holy Church. The material in the Trinity and Winchester manuscripts have been copied from the Anglo Norman version of the work text and adapted in precisely the same way. They replace the chapter of the Seven Works of Mercy for the simple reason that the chapter of the Seven Works of Mercy in the Mirror de l'Eglise was directed towards the religious who don't know who had some anxiety about how can we do works of mercy because we don't have uh, we don't possess goods. Okay, so he's taken that out and he's actually replaced it with another Seven Works of Mercy, and this is reflected in both manuscripts. They also rearrange and present the order of catechetical tracts in exactly the same way. And this connection between these two manuscripts has not been noticed heretofore. The manuscripts, though, are very different. TCD 70 is the earlier manuscript, copied in the first part of the 15th century. The Winchester Anthology probably began to be collected and put together in and around 1477, so towards the end of the 15th century. The Winchester Anthology is a personal notebook, a gathering of tracts over time. TCD 70 is a bespoke manuscript. The Winchester Anthology, however, can give us some clues as to the use that was made of the TCD 70 manuscript. Nicholas Orr, among others, has argued that primers were books associated with the instruction of children. And some of you will be aware, will be familiar with Chaucer's poem about a young schoolboy who is murdered on his way to school. We are told that he learned from his primer at school. This little child, this little book learning as he sat in the school at his primer. The Winchester Anthology supports this understanding of the primer. It has been dated to the later end of the 15th century and was in possession of more than one Benedictine monk in St. Swithin's in Winchester. The contents, in fact, suggest that it belonged to a schoolmaster prior to his days in the monastery because it is an amalgam of romances and poetry, music, etc., including this primer. And in fact, if you look at the layout of the primer part of the manuscript, and still with this Winchester anthology, you notice that there are significant spaces between the lines in, in the primer material to facilitate easy reading for the first time person, for the first time so there's every suggestion um, that these were um, 
the, the, that these were materials used by schoolmasters. Can we assume, therefore, that TCD 70 also has some instructional purpose? We can, simply because there are little clues in the manuscript um, that, that, that help us with this. Um, bear with me. There's a little rhyme the children learned as they learned their alphabet linked to that kiss cross at the cross row at the beginning of the alphabet. Children learned to say things like God me speed or variations of it. The variations could be Christ cross me speed, Christ and courteous Christ gave me speed, God me speed. And then they blessed themselves and began to learn the alphabet. So again, it's good pedagogy. There's a kind of a connection of sort of bodily practice and um, mental um, retention of ideas. Orm says quite clearly that though it is not unique to ch children, it is found in texts associated with or alluding to children. And some of you may recognise um, echoes of the poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, a poem, of course, that focuses on the youth of the court at Camelot. Gawain, the young protagonist, while he's riding on an adventure and prays to God for somewhere to stay during Christmas, uses the old school formula of saying his pater noster, his Ave Maria, and his creed. And then you'll see down at the end, he adds in, Christ, cross Christ, me speed. So he throws in that old formula um, that people often sort of revert to that kind of, uh, what we call it, regression that happens um, in times of stress and distress. Orm is so adamant that this phrase, this idea of Christ cross me speed, is associated with children. He argues that characters and stories might be asked how long ago he said Christ cross me speed by way of asking his age. It is interesting to discover then that the phrase God me speed, in my beginning, God be my good speed, is one of a couple of scribbles found in the margins of TCD 70. So this is probably... Um, somebody you know recalling or retaining um, or practicing with familiar um, phrases that they have in their head and maybe testing um, their penmanship. There are other bits of scribbles. You have this, O oh Lord Richard Taylor. You have another attempt, O oh Lord in thee is all my trust, give ear, which somebody has linked with the, the Thomas Thomas hymns, but in fact there's an earlier hymn writer who also uses this hymn, which is in fact a translation of St. Augustine's, by St. Augustine's hymns, a guy called Coston. Um, and he was writing his, his somewhere in and around the 1520s. So all of these are familiar little bits and pieces that a schoolboy might have been singing, might have been reciting, and perhaps chose to practice um, uh, what we call pen trials, scribbles, um, that give us some ideas that, uh, of the location um, of this, uh, the use that was made of this manuscript. And there is further evidence that this was a book of instruction intended for children. In the final page of the manuscript, we find a copy of Graces to be said before and after meals. And again, we turn to Orm, who described the gradual evolution of prayers before meals into ordinary homes. And I'm quoting. The saying of grace before and after food was originally a monastic observance, copied by the lay nobility from at least the 14th century. By the 15th it had spread farther down society, and the custom seems to have developed by which children, at any rate boys, said or rather led the grace. 
The text sometimes appeared in primers and might be taught by clergy or schoolmasters as part of the process of learning to read. We also have evidence that um, an abbot in Essex didn't want the clergy um, teaching the people, and he meant the children, and specifically meant just teaching them their graces. So we some sense then that this is a book that was used for instruction, um, possibly instructing of children, though not necessarily, both in the basic act of reading and in the Christian faith. But there are still a few anomalies to deal with. Acker points out that the schoolboy of Chaucer's Prioress's tale learned in Latin, and Orm, in his demonstration of children owning books, explained that these were often Latin books. So the, also, we have only six um, English primers, whereas it's my understanding that there's a far greater amount of Latin primers. We also have another conundrum in the Trinity manuscript. The Middle English Psalter copied from the Midwickliffe Bible. Now, a Psalter was originally a Latin work emerging from the monastic tradition of reading all 150 psalms in a single week. This was too cumbersome for the mobile cleric and so a simpler form which replicated the liturgical divisions of the monastic tradition but removed the accompanying prayers and antonyms was divided. Now, the laity also owned Psalters in Latin, but by the 15th century, the time at which Tristi 70 was produced, the laity were more likely to own books of ours. And these were simply selections of sounds. Everything's much more reduced. And But normally, one finds the primers that I've discussed above appended to these books of ours. Hence, as I said to you at the outset, books of ours and primers could be used interchangeably. In wills, you sometimes find somebody had left a primer um, or a book of ours to a favoured relative. So it's interesting, to, therefore, to realise that TCD 70 is the only Wycliffeite Psalter to have catechetical material or primer material attached. Traditionally, we have associated, uh, so it's the only Wycliffeite Psalter of 10 such Psalters to have this material attached. Traditionally, we have associated ownership of copies of the Wycliffeite Bibles in whole or in part as a furtive, dangerous act by heretical, anti-clerical laypeople. Recent scholarship has disabused us of this notion. For example, the Psalter from which the glosses of TCD 70 were copied, Oxford Bible 554, was owned by a cleric. Matty Pecola has demonstrated that the Whitford Bible, especially those with liturgical tables, may have become integrated into mainstream religious practice or reading. Elizabeth Solomkova, who is one of the principal investigators in the Wycliffe Bible study in Oxford, has demonstrated that another of the Wycliffe Bibles belongs to a nun of Barking. And she writes, In spite of a widely held view that the Wycliffe Bible was primarily a book for laity, the known owners of the Bibles constitute a mixed group of lay and religious people, including members of the nobility, women and tradesmen on the one hand, and clerics, and members of the religious orders on the other. The evidence from the manuscripts of the Bible, stronger even that from the trial records and wills, suggests that the owners were often clerics. And I don't think she means heterodox clerics. I think she means clerics that were going about the ordinary business of preaching and saw these books as, as useful. <coughs> so what do we make of TCD 70? It's definitely one of the ten Wycliffeite Psalters. In its production, it is also typical of Wycliffeite Psalters. As I showed you at the beginning, it has the red line. Um, 
giving the first line of the psalm in Latin, though the remainder of the psalms are in English. And there's a consensus among scholars that this was probably a practical tool. Somebody coming at the psalms in English for the first time would only recognise them by the capital letter given to the Latin text. And therefore, it is very useful to give the first line um, in Latin so that it, kind of, it helps them to recognise the old, old way of doing things. I also spoke to you about the retention of liturgical divisions, that there's only one of them left, okay? But there are folios missing in the manuscript, and these were stolen, and they actually relate to where the liturgical divisions would have been. So clearly somebody recognised the pretty gold and the azure blue, etc., and decided to take them, and that, that is actually a common practice. We have it recorded in other manuscripts, and um, the Galiki, I think, 360 is one that, that comes to mind immediately. So TCD 70 is a typical Wycliffeite soldier of the kind that scholars um, argue was most likely owned by a, a cleric. On the other hand, we have a primer that has been linked with lay ownership. So what, what's going on? Do we have a teaching priest? Apparently, certain dioceses did order the clergy to teach the children face to face, though there is little evidence that this actually happened. Was this manuscript actually owned by a cleric? Or is it in fact more of a hybrid, to borrow from the language of my opening paragraph, perhaps we could look at it as a devotional manuscript that reflects a cross-border enterprise? Is it a psalter, acting like a book of hours, i.e. one that eschews the devotional exercises of the traditional books of hours, but retains respect for the scriptures by focusing solely on the Psalms, a very wickified thing to do, but also ensures that the reader, probably lay, had access to the most fundamental aspects of the faith. Now, it's, it's very difficult, um, and Connolly agrees with me about this when she talks about her six anthologies. It's very difficult to be sure about the intentions behind um, the book. What I have discovered, though, is that there are certain marks in the book beyond the pen scribblings that I mentioned earlier that might give us some idea as to the kind of lay reader that might have been using this book. On folios, 96 first, uh, um, we'd say, I think there's five folios. There are five little threads, tiny little threads, you can see them here, okay, stitched into the parchment. Four are in the Psalter, and one marks the opening of the Decalogue. Daniel Sawyer, that's the Ten Commandments, okay, so here you have the green stitch, <coughs> another little green stitch here, okay, and you have another little shaded thing, perhaps that green stitch was used to hold something in place, a little token, a little um, memento, just at a distance, that's how tiny the green stitch is, just to give you some idea of it, I nearly missed it actually, I thought it was a bit of dirt, um, you have another green stitch in folio 1, 1 recto, okay? I'll talk in more details. I want you to see them. You have what we call a natural coloured stitch, which I'm sorry, I has slipped off my slide here. It's kind of like a pale, pinky, beigey colour. Okay, there it is, right? Up there. And there's the black or blue stitch that's marking the Ten Commandments. I don't know what to make of these. And then I came across an article by Daniel Sawyer, who has found similar threads in the prick of conscience corpus of manuscripts. This is a long moralizing poem, also of a cross-border type, because it has been associated with both heterodox and orthodox manuscripts. 
Sawyer describes these threads as bookmarks, describing them as evidence of a discontinuous reading of the thread uh, of the Psalter that indicates a process of selecting particular sounds to read that is in contrast with the reading program of the full Psalter with its liturgical divisions. Interestingly, in TCD 70, we have a wider selection of coloured threads than Sawyer describes. We have green as well as natural or undyed and blue threads. This could be indicative of a reader who had access to a wider variety of threads, such as someone involved in the cloth industry, example, a tailor or a weaver. And this is significant when we consider the prominence that weavers and tailors seem to have had in Wiccified networks. Furthermore, the texts marked by the threads are provocative. They are Psalms 90, 105, 108, and 127, none of which can be traced to any of the books of ours, the devotional exercises, um, we say the, the books of ours for the Blessed Virgin Mary, or for the Holy Cross, etc., etc. Okay, that would be the first thing that you'd say to yourself. Maybe this is somebody setting up their own little book of ours, okay? But in fact, not. On the contrary, the Psalms marked echo with themes of persecution. Um, this one from Psalm 90. Uh, it talks about my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He rescues me from the snare of the fowler set on destruction. Now that one isn't too bad, okay? Though it does talk about a thousand falling at your side. When you come to Psalm 105, give thanks to Yahweh for his good, his faithful love is everlasting. How blessed are those who keep to what is just, whose conduct is always upright. Remember me, Yahweh, your love for your people. Come near to me with your saving power. Let me share the happiness of your chosen ones. Let me share the joy of your people, the pride of your heritage. So there we are claiming uh, rightful inheritance to the kingdom of God. Psalm 108. May his life, here's a curse for you, right? Somebody's been cursed. May his life be cut short, someone else take over his office, his children be orphaned, his wife be widowed. It's an ex in other words, it's an expression of persecution. And it goes on, poor and needy as I am, any wounds go right to the heart. I am passing away like a fading shadow. They have shaken me off like a locust. Now again, Michael Kaczynski has written extensively on the Psalms and has written particularly extensively on the use of the Psalms by the Lollards. And he talks about a katena, a collection of psalm verses in a manuscript in America that reflect these themes of persecution, these themes of justice, these themes of um, righteousness. Um, he, he, he talks about, they indicate a polemical stance, a selection of psalms that speak of social oppositions, good and bad, persecuted and persecutors, rewarded, rewarded and condemned. Um, here, just with the unjust versus the just, the rich versus the poor, um, and that these economic categories are elided into Lollard poems of the moral antithesis of unrighteousness versus righteousness. But if, and, and of course, there is a tradition of using the Psalms almost as poetry to articulate um, one's either inner spiritual state or collectively to identify um, with the body of the faithful. Um, and, and the kind of long tradition of the body of faith, whether that would originate the, the Jews or at this stage um, the kind of Christian tradition of saying the, 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 the soldier. And it's possible to argue that either side of the religious debates of the 15th or 16th centuries may have read the Psalms in this way. Yet the Psalms are consistent with large polemic and tone. 
laboring the sense of persecution, because it uses the verb flaunt. Um, it is these threads, indicating the selection of a particular type of psalms, I argue, that suggests TCD7G was at some point in the hands of a lollard or Wycliffeite reader. Even the fact that the Ten Commandments are marked, um, because the Ten Commandments would have been revered, would have been a, a part of the doctrine that was very much associated with Lollards and Wycliffeites. Now, so let's kind of review the, the bits of information. We have a Psalter translated into English from the dangerous Wycliffeite Bible, though in reality more often attributed to clerical ownership. We have the copying of the primary material into another manuscript located in Winchester, Winchester with um, we have the marking of strident sounds with a variety of coloured threads. We have markings that locate the manuscript in the hands of, of instruction. And we have the primer catechism translated from the Anglo-Norman text with a self-consciously English alphabet. Can we draw, no pun intended, these threads together to suggest a possible scenario? Discussing the London book trade of the 14th century, Ralph Hanna comments on the translation of a large number of Anglo-Norman works into Middle English, describing it as a process of acculturation, in which the wealthy, mercantile, urban elite, in an effort to emulate the aristocracy, have works, religious and secular, translated into Middle English. And Abingdon's mirror, that which we found in TCD 70 and in Winchester, is no exception. Its translation into Middle English seems to belong to that acquisition of literacy and consequently access to literature that marks the upper urban elite of the 15th century. This ties in with Robert Lutton's understanding of the strength and continuity of descent as part of a more fundamental cultural shift of the period. So it's part of a shift. It's not just um, kind of hanging there on its own. And he says, in an attempt to explain this deeper pattern of change, I proposed that its origins lay in rapid social mobility and restructuring that placed a premium on economic and moral investment and family advancement over and above conventional and common um, religious practices. TCD 70 was produced as a part of the London book trade of the early 15th century, perhaps for a family keen to establish itself as a model of decorum and holiness to rival any aristocratic family. But, not forgetting that Anglican W, the alphabet, a family with sympathy for the vernacular cause. And of course, wealthy patronage would also explain the survival of the manuscript in a period when such books were often cited as evidence of heresy in church trials. Many Wycliffeite preachers, though not all, had gentry support. And again, it's generally understood nowadays that privilege, status and wealth may be some of the deciding factors in the fate of a book and its owners. Not all Wycliffe Bible owners were persecuted, otherwise we wouldn't have the 250 that have survived. Also, thanks to the mobility of the late medieval gentry, somehow in the later half of the 15th century, that manuscript, a part of it, somehow was copied by somebody linked to a school um, in Winchester, and from there may have crossed into the hands of a more obviously Lollard um, group. We know that Wycliffeites were had networks, had clusters. Um, we know that they valued books and circulated books, and in the trials they often named somebody who actually taught them. Okay, So they had a sense of school, of education, and of instruction. Wycliffeites valued 
literacy. Again, I have to say to you, I, I'm quick to point out, this is hypothetical, it's just Winchester was one of the places that suffered trials in the early part of the 16th century, and that some of those accused name a man from London who taught them. So you could see how the book might have migrated, okay, might have crossed the borders. But unfortunately to date, I cannot find any of the names that I found in the manuscript in any of those trials, okay? Now, we have in TCD 70 then, I'm kind of drawing to a conclusion at this stage, a book that reflects the soft borders of devotional and religious practice. Borrowing material that could safely um, operate within the orthodox teachings of the traditional church, but also could have appealed to the more fundamental desire for instruction um, of, the, of the reformists. It provided access to the scriptures for the laity, for example. It vernacularised religious teachings. And it has a notable removal of what I call, um, I, I hope some of you know what I'm talking about, what I call smells and bells, okay? Like it has removed that sense of an extreme devotion and piousness that we associate with the orthodox um, lay movement of the 14th century. It's quite bare in some ways. Um, but it's hard to know, to be really clear that it began its life exactly as a book intended for Wycliffeites or Lollards. I would argue, though, that a hundred years later, uh, through the hands of teachers or, or, or kind of schools of instruction where they, they were at home or, or more formally, it seems to have um, found its way into in a, a, a sect that felt somewhat persecuted, was still committed to the tenets, tenets of basic doctrine. Um, in other words, we have in Trinity College Dublin 70 a migrating manuscript um, moving between borders, in reality at home, in any one of the religious divides of the 15th century, though perhaps, perhaps, if I were asked to call it, leaning, <coughs> I think, somewhat towards a reformist mindset. <coughs>